History tells the story of the world and of our lives. Sometimes that history goes bump in the night. Broadcasting from the center of oddity and the supernatural in Central Florida, it's the History Goes Bump podcast. Hello, you spooktacular people. Welcome to this 382nd episode of the History Ghost Bump podcast, Ghost Tours for the Theater of the Mind. I'm your host, Diane. And this is Kelly. Kelly, on this episode, we have one of those ones that's everybody's favorite. Let me guess. Haunted Cemeteries? Indeed. It's Haunted Cemeteries number 18. Dang! And we're also going to talk about a wonderful topic, cremation. I can't wait. Kelly, I burn for you. Oh, my word. Just don't burn up. <laughs> I don't want to be sweeping the soot off the ground. <laughs> I was looking through some old newspaper articles, and I found this one that I wanted to share with everybody. It's, it's very interesting. I think our listeners will enjoy it. So this was in the Jersey Journal, which was out of Jersey City, New Jersey, March 29th, 1883. Coffins made of glass. It's almost worthwhile dying to be buried in one of them, said the inventor of a glass coffin yesterday to a Times reporter. Henry H. Berry, the speaker who lives on Fifth Street, just below Spruce, has for many years interested himself in transparent systems of burial. After conceiving the glass casket, he kept it a secret for a long while, until on October 24th of last year it was patented. He is searching for a capitalist, and the reporter became one for the time being. Yes, continued the inventor, I believe the success of this thing is going to be immense. What is the advantage of glass for domiciles of the dead? In the first place, one has perfect preservation before being placed in the vial. I love how they're calling this glass coffin a vial. The patient is embalmed. I may say that the coffin is devised on the walnut shell principle in two halves. After my customers are once securely packed in coffins, I apply an exhaust pump, take out all the air, and hermetically seal up the aperture. Then the thing is accomplished. I believe sincerely that the whole business will last through several generations. There is the advantage that no infectious disease can come through the glass. The flesh of the subject will preserve its natural tints. Gotta love that. And relatives and friends will be able to view the deceased for years to come. Oh, goody. As a sanitary reform, it is unparalleled, he went on. Tenanted coffins can be piled up like any other merchandise anywhere and stay there for years. Some people might prefer to keep relatives in their own houses nicely put away in the coffins. Oh, my word. There is nothing objectionable about the idea. When buried in cemeteries, there will be no exhalations, whatever. And in case of the removal of graveyards, the coffins can be taken up and carted away with no more offense than would be given by so many kegs of nails. What are the dimension and shape of the coffin? Asked the reporter. They can be made of all sizes. The glass is three-eighths of an inch thick, and the coffin is oval with a concave top. It would not do to have it flat, as with a vacuum inside it, the glass would collapse. Wouldn't they get smashed in cemeteries, queried the investor? On the contrary, we have a system of toughening the glass that makes it like iron. A spade struck against the coffin with a good deal of force will not break it. Body snatchers would get their fingers cut, but that's all right. I don't legislate for ghouls. There's no end to the variations which could be made on these coffins. 
The glass can be clouded so that only the face is visible. It can be colored, or butterflies and weeping willows can be placed at intervals all over the surface. How nice. There are a thousand ways of ornamenting the exterior. What will they cost, was the next question. From seven up, seven dollars, I mean, of course. They could possibly be manufactured of such choice material and so beautifully etched as to cost as much as a thousand dollars each. Can you imagine back in the Victorian era? That's a lot of money. Heck yeah. I have often wished that at the time of President Garfield's death, I'd had a glass coffin. I'm sure it would have been used. I propose to form a company with a capital of some half a million of dollars. No, sir, I will not sell you the patent outright, so it's no use pressing me to do so. I have too much faith in its future for that. Another reason is that I am determined it shall not get into the hands of monopolists, who will run up the price of coffins to a fancy figure. This casket was invented as much with the idea of benefiting the poor as anything else. Of course, there will be money in it for me, and I suppose I shall have to accept whatever comes. Mr. Barry then proceeded to unfold the particulars of a remarkable scheme. He said that he had often heard a proposition discussed for excavating and constructing huge catacombs in this city for the reception of the dead. In that case, he thought his invention would be invaluable. He called the scheme a trust and safe deposit idea. All righty then. <laughs> we should have a vast system of vaults, he explained, in which coffins would be placed. Spaces could be reserved for families. Here in a stall would be a father, by his side his wife. On the upper shelf, the grandmother and grandfather. And above that, the other ancestors. Each coffin would have a number at its foot, and catalogs would be issued giving the names of the occupants. For instance, Henry Jones, 241. Above the vaults would be a suit of elegant reception rooms into which visitors would be invited. How nice. Pelly, it's kind of like going to the graveyard to have a picnic with your family member. I guess so. This gets even better. They could sit down and call for, say, number 241. An attendant would go downstairs, slide the casket indicated up onto a little borrow, come back again and leave it with them as long as they liked. So you could just have Grandpa come on up in his coffin <laughs> and is, hang out. It is like a safety deposit box. <laughs> Don't open it. You don't want to see what's inside. <laughs> That's exactly what it's like. They could look at it, have it taken to its shelf when they were through, and return home. A certain amount of rent would, of course, have to be exacted. What do you say of going into the enterprise? It will take, assuredly. There are a lot of other millionaires thinking the matter over, so you'd better decide at once. Good afternoon. Let me hear from you in a few days. Can you believe that was <laughs> oh, a newspaper article back in 1883? <laughs> that is hilarious. And it really is like a safety deposit. <laughs> it really is. All right. We want to welcome a ton of people into our spectacular crew. Bear with us. We have Sarah with an H, M, Wim, Andy with an IE, Katie with an IE, Nair, Mary Jo, Chip, Stephanie, Megan, Crid, Elizabeth, Kirsten, Reed, Kimberly with an LY at the end, Amanda, Joy, Tony, Cassio, Gina, Lenora, and with Noe, Nicholas, Rhonda, Jen, Capone, Serena, PL, Don, Michelle with two L's, Dwight, Paula, Annie with an IE, Christiana with a CH, Susan, Love and Death Penhurst para investigator. Wonder what you do. Thomas, Brian, Amanda, Ryan, Trisha, Carol, and Rebecca. That was a mouthful. And thank you so much, everyone, for joining us in the Spooktacular crew. And now, this moment, Noddy. The moment in oddity was suggested by Jeannie Nolan. Willamette National Forest has a very bizarre phenomenon that occurs there that has been called the Lost Lake Hole. This is a hole in the forest that fills up with water from streams that drain into it during the winter. 
The weird phenomenon happens in the spring when the hole suddenly drains all of its water. It's like the floor of the lake drops out and all the water just disappears. Pictures taken while this happens shows what looks like a big hole surrounded by waterfalls as the water just flows down and away, and nobody knows where it goes. Scientists have blamed the region's volcanic landscape, that is porous, for absorbing the water. That hardly seems like it could absorb that much water. But others believe that there is also some kind of lava tube under the hole, and that that is where much of the water drains. This fills up the underground water supply, which eventually feeds into the springs and the process starts again. We still wonder why the water doesn't just drain all the time. That seems to be the greater mystery, and this lost lake certainly is odd. Kelly, we have a new podcast for everybody to check out. I know. I'm so excited. This is called Bizarre Times. The show's host, K-Town, will explore everything from bizarre phenomenon, places, rituals, people, customs, crimes, experiences, and more. Sounds like K-Town covers everything. It certainly does. There's two new episodes ready for you to dig into right now. One of them about a deviant child predator who made it his life's mission to prey upon the young and innocent and the other about a woman locked away in a box for more than 44 years. Subscribe to Bizarre Times right now on Apple Podcast, Amazon Music, Google Play, or wherever you listen to audio. Bizarre Times. Trust me, it's the ultimate feast for the strange and bizarre. Check it out. And you guys may have heard K-Town on Mysterious Radio. So if you're fans of that, you no doubt will be fans of this new venture. And now, this month in history. In the month of April, on the 9th in 1962, Puerto Rican actress Rita Moreno becomes the first Hispanic woman to win an Oscar. Moreno was born in Puerto Rico in 1931, and her family eventually migrated to New York. She got her first acting gig on Broadway when she was only 13 years old. She later got a supporting role in the movie The King and I, which she cherished because she felt as though this was outside of all the stereotypical roles she'd been placed in before, particularly in westerns. She would land the role of a lifetime in 1961's film remake of the musical West Side Story. She would play Anita, a Puerto Rican immigrant who is good friends with Maria, who is the sister of her boyfriend. Other actors in the film, like Natalie Wood and Richard Boehmer, didn't sing their own songs, but Moreno did, and she gives a very memorable performance as she sings the song America. West Side Story won 10 Oscars, including Best Picture and, of course, Moreno's Best Supporting Actress. As part of her acceptance speech, she said, I can't believe it. Good Lord, I leave you with that. She later went on to win a Tony Award in 1975. And during the 1970s, she appeared on The Electric Company. And for those of you my age, we remember, Hey, you guys! Very fondly. She won an Emmy for her work on The Muppet Show. She's one of the few actors to have won an Emmy, a Grammy, an Oscar, and a Tony Award. Why would a spirit hang around their grave? We recall that we had a listener named Maya write us a few months back, and she had wondered if cemeteries were haunted because spirits were guarding their bodies, particularly from grave robbers. And we had wondered if maybe some spirits were hanging around because that is where their family would come to visit them. We may never know why a cemetery is haunted. 
but there are plenty to investigate to try and find out why. On this episode, we have the Lost Cemetery of Infants from Texas, Citizen Cemetery in Arizona, 100 Step Cemetery, and Step Cemetery in Indiana, and Erie Street Cemetery in Ohio. We also will be discussing cremation and a haunted crematory. Join us for Haunted Cemeteries 18. First up, we have The Lost Cemetery of Infants, and this was suggested to us by Scott Booker. The Lost Cemetery of Infants is found in Doug Russell Park, located at 801 West Mitchell Street in Arlington, Texas. Most cemeteries, Kelly, as we've come to find, especially if they're a little bit bigger, have a nursery area that's been reserved for the burial of children and babies, but this entire cemetery is dedicated to them. Reverend James Tony Upchurch created the Baraka Industrial Home for the Redemption and Protection of Erring Girls in 1894 as an attempt to help pregnant girls transition back into regular society. Don't you love that mouthful there? <laughs> I'm glad you had to say it. The Redemption and Protection of Erring Girls. Of course, the boys didn't have anything to do with them getting knocked up. The Reverend was forward thinking at the time because most places, especially churches, would turn these young women away. The girls would be taught a viable trade like sewing, typing, printing, doing laundry, and they only had to follow a couple of rules. And people might be like, printing? What does that have to do with anything? I guess they actually had a newsletter that went with the church, and so they would all get on board and help out with putting out this newsletter or magazine, something like that. They had to attend church, and they had certain chores they were assigned. They also had to raise their babies for a year and then give them up for adoption. But I'm assuming that was so that the baby could be weaned, maybe? I would imagine. The Institute grew over the years, covering 40 acres, and eventually transitioned into an orphanage. It was after the Reverend passed in 1950 that things started to go downhill. By the 1960s, all the buildings on the property had been torn down and the land sold off. But one thing remained, a plot of land where babies that had been stillborn or died from sickness had been buried. Most markers are flat to the ground and contain only a first name or a number after the infant. So it might be like infant 6 or infant 10 if they'd been too young to have been named. We're not sure why this simple little lost cemetery is haunted, but people claim to be touched as though someone is stroking their hair, and shadow figures are seen sometimes darting between the trees, and disembodied voices of children have been heard. Which I find interesting because it seems like most of the children that are buried here were actually babies. I would almost imagine that if people are getting their hair stroked and things like that, it's the spirits of the moms that had to bury their children there. You'd almost think it was more of a mothering kind of thing. And it just to me, it's just weird that you would hear disembodied voices of children. I mean, maybe of babies crying, but... Next, we have Citizen Cemetery in Flagstaff. This was suggested and researched by Susan Johnson of Freaky Flagstaff Foot Tours. She joined us on episode 275 to talk about Haunted Flagstaff. She wrote me just, oh, I think a month and a half ago and said, hey, the next haunted cemeteries you guys do, you need to do this one because it's on her tour. So she has researched this and written this part of our episode. Greenwood Cemetery sat at the foot of Mars Hill, and it was decided to move the bodies to a new cemetery, Flagstaff's Citizen Cemetery, which was established in 1891. Unfortunately, only 40 of the 64 bodies made the trip, so there are probably still the remains of 24 people under Thorpe Park, which took the place of Greenwood Cemetery. 
The story goes that Greenwood Cemetery was the final stop for many of the outlaws and gunslingers of the late 1800s, and the town's hanging tree was conveniently located nearby. Percival Lowell was the town's father, and one has to wonder whether his decision to build his observatory atop of Mars Hill had anything to do with the town father's decision to move the cemetery some two miles southeast to its current location. I'm sure it had nothing to do with it. Oh, I'm, I'm certain of it. <laughs> the cemetery covers 40 acres and has one-lane roads and rolling hills dotted with trees, giving it a beautiful and peaceful feel, even though Northern Arizona's university's north campus is literally across the street. When one enters the wrought iron gates, it is like being transported into a quieter world far apart from the hustle and bustle of present-day Flagstaff. Burials are still conducted there today and the cemetery is open to the public during daylight hour. A visitor familiar with the Northern Arizona history would recognize a number of the names of old pioneer families that are interred here. Platt Klein, longtime editor of the town paper, and his wife are buried in the southernmost section of the cemetery, close to the Secris, which was the town doctor in the early mid-1900s, and the Pollocks, who was an extremely wealthy businessman involved in banking, cattle, and real estate. Interestingly, most of the headstones in the cemetery face east, as was customary in the 19th and 20th centuries. I'm sure most people know it was a Christian thing. Christ was supposed to come that way, so you want to face him, I guess. There were a few exceptions, Pat Klein being one of them. He said he wanted his stone to face north toward the majestic south San Francisco peaks, whose beauty brought him west and kept him in Flagstaff his adult life. Other names that would be familiar to locals are the Midgleys, Schweitzers, Hochdurfers, Donnies, Pulliams, Mannings, and Whipples. There are several grave sites and citizens that are truly historic, some to the area and one in particular to the world at large. On June 30, 1956, the worst disaster in aviation history to that date occurred. 128 souls were lost when a TWA Super Constellation and a United DC-7 collided over the Grand Canyon most likely due to the pilots of both planes wanting to give their passengers a thrilling peek at the Great Gorge north of Flagstaff. I'm thinking that the pilots should have been paying attention to where they were flying. They must have been looking out the windows, too. Possibly. Commercial air travel was relatively new in the 50s, and the airliners competed vigorously to show the public the pleasures and safety of flying. They failed just a little. Both flights had departed Los Angeles International Airport that Saturday morning, with the TWA Flight 2 heading for Kansas City Downtown Airport, 31 minutes behind schedule, and 70 souls aboard. United Flight 718 departed three minutes later, heading for Chicago's Midway Airport, carrying 58. Both planes headed east at designated altitudes and flight routes. This was in the years before air traffic control was in place. To put the procedure very simply... When commercial airlines departed most major airports, they were in controlled airspace and in communication with the tower directing all local air traffic. However, very shortly they would leave that space, and when that occurred, a United pilot would be calling United's control tower, located perhaps 1,000 miles away, or ground operator, and that person would call TWA's ground operator or tower and relay the message or request, which was then relayed back to the United operator and to the pilot who initiated it. So you already have this major delay in communication and then throw in limited use of radar. On top of that, the main rule in the air was seen and be seen rules rather than see and avoid. The two flights collided over the Grand Canyon at approximately 10.30 a.m. with the United's DC-10 left wing clipping the stabilizer of the TWA plane, shearing it off along with part of the rear fuselage and sending it straight down into the canyon at more than 450 miles per hour. 
United Flight 718 was mortally wounded from the collision as well, with a mangled left wing and engine and dropped into the canyon in a deadly left spiral, landing miles apart from the TWA plane. Sadly, there were few identifiable remains. I can only imagine. Retrieving what was left was difficult and treacherous work. I can also imagine that in the Grand Canyon. And the Swiss Air Rescue were called in to help. On July 9, 1956, a mass funeral was held for the victims of TWA Flight 2 at the canyon. 66 of the 70 passengers' remains from that flight were flown to Flagstaff and buried in a mass grave in Citizen Cemetery. An interesting aside to this story is that the investigation into the collision of these two planes over the Grand Canyon is credited with the creation of the FAA and with millions of dollars being invested into updating the airline's industry. Sad that it took that, but at least it got done. Yeah, I mean, you hate for that to be the reason, but that's usually what happens with this stuff. They start implementing other things. There have been no hauntings at the mass grave in the cemetery, but there have been hauntings reported in the canyon near the crash sites by park rangers. One such report from Ranger K.J. Glover when she camped between Trar and Temple Buttes one night she heard the low murmuring of voices outside her tent. When she looked outside, she saw a line of people, more than 12, in dresses and suits walking up the trail and talking amongst themselves as though nothing was amiss. Glover also reported that they were followed by several Native Americans, speaking in a language she could not understand. When she got out of her tent to investigate, there was no one there. A Journey into the Haunted also tells of sightings between the two crash sites, with people dressed in city attire being seen as well as people wandering around confused and crying. Again, when checked further, no living beings are detected. You know what I think is kind of cool about that story? The first one where she saw the Native Americans following the group of people in regular city attire. So these spirits seem to be communicating with each other because those were probably Native American spirits all kind of in the same place together. I I thought that was cool that they were in the same area. Maybe these people wouldn't know the Grand Canyon and possibly the Native American spirits did. So it's like they're trying to guide them out. I don't know. Yeah. Another gravesite of interest is that of Thelma Marie Walkup and her four children. Daniel, age 10, Rose, age 8, John, age 5, and baby Elizabeth, just 19 months. What first catches one's attention is that the date of death for all five of the walk-ups buried here is the same, July 22nd, 1937. Kelly, this reminds me of the burial for the Moore family that we saw in Villisca. I was just going to say that. This one, it sounds like they might have different headstones, whereas the Moore family in Villisca, it's one very long tombstone with their names all on it. Here is the story behind the walk-up murders. It was just another lovely summer's day that Thursday when J.D. Walkup, chairman of the Coconino County Supervisors and Man About Town, kissed his wife and children goodbye and headed to Phoenix for another of his many meetings. J.D. also either offered or was recruited to take several of the college women who were headed to Phoenix for a regional softball tournament with him. This would not have been unreasonable as there was no Interstate 17 in 1937 and the trip to the state capitol would have been a good five to six hours away, just going one way. The walk-up children were seen playing outside until late afternoon in their yard. Marie Walkup had called a family physician the day before, complaining of a chronic stomach ailment and expressing worry that the children may have contracted it this time. Dr. Fronsky later said that Marie sounded anxious and overwrought. He tried to reassure her during the call. Later Thursday night at approximately 10.20, Marie again called the doctor's house. This time, Fonsky was not at home, but he had left his son Robert in charge of taking any messages from his patients or other callers. Robert grabbed a pencil and wrote down Marie Walkup's missive to his father. Tell him to come by early tomorrow morning, and be sure to tell him not tonight, but tomorrow. The night of the 22nd was a full moon, and the perfect evening for four young people to take a midnight hike through the forest around the golf club, country club, just north of the town. I'm sure that's all they were doing, was hiking. 
You have such a dirty mind. Ed Conrad, 29, and the oldest of the group, had trespassed through the stark yet majestic area many times before and had never seen anyone else about. Years later, a groundskeeper was hired to live on site, but in 1937, it was an ideal place to roam through, flask in hand, especially under a full moon. I told you they weren't just going for a hike. (laughs) Well, it's not like you haven't read this before. (laughs) (laughs) As the group rounded the fourth hole, they stopped. Silhouetted in the moonlight, they could see the outline of a car parked on the access road that separated the golf course from Colton's ranch. The night was still and silent, and Ed realized there was no motor running. The group slowly approached the vehicle and saw that the driver's side door was open, but no one was in the car. One of the young women went around the back of the car to take a peek, but let out a shriek when she saw a foot lying by the tire. Ed quickly joined her and discovered the body of a woman, dressed in a flimsy robe and nightgown, lying dead with a hole torn through her chest. An old army rifle was lying next to her lifeless body, and her right foot was shoeless. The group ran back to their own car and headed into town to notify the officials. Ed Conrad dropped his fellow trespassers off before alerting the sheriff. Then he returned with two deputies to the scene of the tragedy. Both of the deputies, Deputies Francis and Willis, recognized the walk-up car as they approached it in the darkness. After all, Flagstaff only had a population of 5,000 in 1937, and J.D. Walkup was well-known in the town. As they got out to investigate, they found the woman just as Conrad had reported. There was no doubt in either deputy's mind that the woman was Marie Walkup. Willis stayed with Conrad at the scene while Francis headed back into town. A coroner's jury would have to be convened as soon as possible. After he arrived at the office, Deputy Francis notified the county coroner as well as the county health official, then called for reinforcements to man the office. And now a little break for a word about one of our sponsors. This episode has been brought to you by Smile Brilliant. Do you grind your teeth in your sleep? I know I do. If so, you're among 40 million other Americans who do. So, Kelly, you're not that big of a weirdo. Yes, I am. Whether it's stress, anxiety, or an abnormal bite, chronic teeth grinding will lead to worn enamel, tooth decay, sleeplessness, and expensive dental procedures. And I have one to add to that, headaches. Oh, that's true. Yep. The number one teeth grinding prevention recommended by dentists is the custom-fitted night guard. However, it's costly with the average dentist charging $200 to $300 per guard, and you will grind through several per year. Using Smile Brilliant's Lab Direct process, you can get the same custom-fitted night guards for as little as $45 per guard. Additionally, Smile Brilliant has custom-fitted teeth whitening trays and the Carapro electric toothbrush. Head over to www.smilebrilliant.com and use BUMP at checkout for 30% off. Once again, that's www.smilebrilliant.com and use BUMP at checkout. This episode is sponsored by HelloFresh. Kelly, HelloFresh has made our life so easy. And yummy. (laughs) Indeed. It has been so tough for us to come up with meals that are creative and balanced and easy to make every single week. We both work. And by the time we get to dinner time, it's like, I don't even want to think about what I'm going to be making. Exactly. I mean, I work much later than you typically. And having something that we can put together in 30 minutes. I mean, it's incredible. The meals are so yummy. HelloFresh offers 25 or more recipes that you can choose from each week. They have vegetarian meals, craft burgers, extra special gourmet options, and something that I didn't know until after we signed up, Kelly. They also offer the option of other meals. So it's not just dinner. You could get all three meals a day. They have snack options, special treats. There's all kinds of stuff that you can order from them. You have extras where you could have like garlic bread to go with your pasta meal. 
So cool. And you know, their portions are huge. They are. (laughs) We signed up for the two servings three days a week, and it takes care of us for six days. It sure does. Great thing is we have it delivered every Monday. It's on our doorstep. We don't even have to think about what we're going to do for the week. And it's just so quick and easy. The ingredients are all fresh, sourced directly from growers and delivered from the farm to our front door in under a week. Kelly, we just got done enjoying beef and cheese tostadas, sweet and smoky pork tenderloin and chicken sausage cavatappi bolognese with zucchini and parmesan. It was all delicious. And it's so nice having something different every single week. You know, not the same old, same old. If you want to join us in our food adventures with HelloFresh, go to HelloFresh.com slash bump12 and use code bump12 for 12 free meals, including free shipping. Again, that's HelloFresh.com slash bump12 and use code bump12 for 12 free meals, including free shipping. This is America's number one meal kit. The three men, Francis, Coroner Miller, and Dr. Sherman, met at the sheriff's office and prepared to drive the four miles north to the country club. But first, they had a stop to make. Francis knew J.D. Walkup was scheduled to be in Phoenix that weekend. He'd even given a ride to some of the women ballplayers. If Marie was lying dead outside the family car up at the golf course, who was with the four Walkup children? The Walkup house was only blocks away from the sheriff's office, so the caravan made a stop outside the spacious house sitting on a corner lot on LaRoe Street. The house was quiet when the three approached it around 1 a.m. and they walked through the gate and up the three steps to the front door. Tacked to the door was a folded piece of paper addressed to Dr. Fronsky. Inside an empty milk bottle just outside the front door was another piece of paper. The men unfurled the stationery and read the words, No milk today. One of the three decided to call Dr. Fronsky at that point while the other two tried the front door. It was unlocked, so they stepped inside the residence. The house was neat and tidy inside and very, very quiet. The two went to the back of the downstairs to a downstairs bedroom and opened the door. Inside the room was a toddler's crib and a regular-sized bed. Going to the crib, they first discovered little Elizabeth. She was neat and clean and had bed covers pulled up to her chin. However, as the men bent closer, they saw she was not breathing nor even stirring. Pulling back her little covers, they discovered ugly welts around her neck. Elizabeth, also known as Phoebe to her family, was dead. All the walk-up children were discovered deceased, and it was later reported that they had been killed by their mother, who stabbed them with an ice pick before strangling them. Several notes were left by Marie, including one addressed to her mother and sister, detailing how she wished the burial services to be conducted. All five of the walk-ups were buried in a double plot in Citizen Cemetery, with the children side-by-side in one plot directly east of their mother in the adjoining one. There are several unexplained sightings connected to the walk-up murders. Many people have seen the spirit of a small girl kicking a ball about in the front yard of the old walk-up house. A resident of the home, whose own daughter spent her early years in the house, said she would ask her dad about those kids, who she'd find standing around her bed looking down at her some mornings. Another haunting that Susan thinks may be related to the walk-up murders is the sighting of a woman on the side of the road wearing evening attire and looking for a ride, much like Resurrection Mary. The young woman appears in distress and is often cold, leaving the motorist to offer her a coat or blanket. At some point in the ride, as the driver is taking her to a destination, he looks over and finds the young woman has vanished. Later, the coat or blanket is found draped over the gates of Citizen Cemetery. Isn't that weird? Some reports of where the woman is first seen and picked up from are actually very close to the old walk-up house. 
Several years ago, Susan spoke to the groundskeeper about the cemetery and asked if he had heard of any of the hauntings. He laughed a bit and said he always found it a peaceful place, even when he had to work late and was at the office well past nightfall. While the gates close at dusk, many times over the decades, students have either accepted a dare or taken an adventure and trespassed through the grounds at night. There have been reports of blinking lights that disappear when approached, music that turns on and off, and other unearthly noises that generally scare them to death. Susan said, I was sitting by the walk-up grave in 2018 as part of a fundraiser for the Pioneer Historical Society, as there are no known living relatives of the family buried there. While sitting for several hours awaiting any visitors, I noticed that all my senses, especially smell, became highly acute at times, almost like waves of energy that came through. It was quite odd. I may have had the experience before, but it's not a usual one. I never thought I'd say this, but I was quite happy to call it a day when the fundraising tour was over. We want to thank Susan for sharing that cemetery with us. It's one of the places that you can visit on her tours with her. If you're ever in Flagstaff, highly encourage you to check that out. One of these days, we're going to get over there and and do that tour with her. Yes, we will. Next, we have 100 Steps or Cloverland Cemetery. This was suggested to us by our listener, James Allen. What seems like a beautiful cemetery with an unusually long stairway becomes quite creepy once you hear the following account shared on November 20th, 1892 in the Indianapolis Journal. The citizens of Posey Township of this county are greatly stirred up over a ghastly discovery made at the Carpenter Cemetery, and that's another name for this cemetery, one half mile south of Cloverdale yesterday afternoon. About two years ago, George West, a wealthy farmer of that place, buried his daughter, Miss Emma. She died of an ordinary disease, and nothing to cause any fear of her grave being molested was apprehended. Recently, Mr. West bought a lot in the cemetery and yesterday engaged assistants to help him remove his daughter's remains to the new grounds. When the coffin was reached, all present were startled to find it upside down in the hole and the corpse missing. Oh, my word. (laughs) That would just be a little troubling. Yeah, just slightly. What is crazy about this is, I mean, clearly some grave robbers must have gotten a hold of her, but to throw the coffin back in upside down? Because usually you would just think if they would dig down, they'd open the coffin, pull out the body, and then throw the dirt back on top. How did the coffin get upside down? Right, so it must have been lifted out. They must have. It's just weird. Cloverland Cemetery, or what is also known as the 100 Step Cemetery, is located about halfway between Brazil and Terre Haute on US-40, about a half mile south of Cloverland. The cemetery faces west on a hill, overlooking North County Road 675 West, and was established in the mid-1860s. The 100-step cemetery acquired its name because there is a large staircase that visitors need to climb to get to the top of the cemetery. The original stairway became half-buried and started to crumble, so a new one was built to replace it. There is a legend connected to this stairway, of course. It is said that if someone counts the stairs as they climb them on a moonless night at midnight, they will count 100 steps going up, but a different number when coming back down. Another legend connected to the stairway claims that once a person climbs the stairs, if they turn around and look down, they will see the ghost of the first caretaker of the cemetery, and he will reveal a sinister vision of how the person will die. To find out if the vision is true, the person needs to count the stairs going down, and if the count is the same as going up, then the vision is not true. A mismatched count will mean the vision will come true. Anybody trying to get down the stairs by not actually walking on them will feel a force push them back onto the stairs, and a red handprint will develop on their body. Next up, we have Step Cemetery, which was also suggested by James Allen. This is a very small graveyard located in Martinsville, Indiana. 
There are only 25 graves here, the oldest belonging to Isaac Hartstock, who was a veteran of the War of 1812, and he died in 1851. Ten graves of the Hacker family are here. Sir Malcolm Dunbar Hacker and his wife Anne had eight children, four of them dying before reaching the age of 12. There's also the headstone for baby Lester here, who died shortly after being born. In the 1950s, this small plot of land became a hangout for teenagers. That is when the ghost story started about this place. Strange noises were heard and disembodied voices moved on the air. And the most famous ghost here started making appearances. This would be the woman in black, and she would regularly appear sitting on a tree stump near baby Lester's grave. She would be holding a ghostly baby in her arms. That stump soon was nicknamed the Warlock's Chair, which I don't get because if she's sitting on it... (laughs) Another spirit said to be here belongs to a young girl that was murdered and had her body dumped nearby. She wanders around the tombstones, perhaps looking for her killer, because that person was never caught and brought to justice. Next, we have Erie Street Cemetery in Cleveland, which is located right across from Progressive Field at 2254 East 9th Street in Cleveland, Ohio. This is the city of Cleveland's oldest cemetery and was founded in 1826 as the Erie Street Cemetery because that was the name of the street there at the time. Today, that street is known as East 9th Street. The cemetery was more on the outskirts of town, but eventually as the city grew, development encroached, and soon bodies were being removed in the early 1900s. Some bodies were sent to Lakeview Cemetery, and others to Highland Park Cemetery. The Pioneers Memorial Association was founded soon after to save the cemetery, and that is why this cemetery is across from a ball field. The use of pioneer in the name is fitting as many of Cleveland's pioneers are buried here. This includes Lorenzo Carter, who was the first permanent white settler in Cleveland. Cleveland's first mayor, John W. Wiley, is buried here, too. There could be as many as 18,000 burials here. Many victims of the 1850 Griffith Steamship Fire are buried here. This tragedy took place on Lake Erie. The ship was the steamer G.P. Griffith, and it caught fire at 3 a.m. on June 17, 1850. The steamer was close to land, so people on board were not too worried. However, about a half mile from shore, the steamer hit a sandbar and got stuck. There were 326 on board and only 30 would survive. Can you imagine being just a half mile from shore and almost everybody on board dies? That's terrible. Those people who survived were those who jumped into the lake and swam for shore. And this group included only one woman and no children. All other women and children on board died. 154 bodies were recovered. Another burial here is for Jocosat, and the headstone is cracked with a legend about how this came to happen. Jocosat was also known as Walking Bear, and he was chief of the Meskwaki, a tribe from Iowa. Jocosat took part in the Black Hawk War, and when that ended, he went east to hunt and met a man named Dan Marble there. Marble had a theater troupe that traveled internationally, and he invited Jocosat to join the troupe. He joined them in traveling to England, where he met Queen Victoria and came under her favor. He stayed with the troop until he became ill, and he was so sick, he decided he needed to return home. If death was going to take him, he wanted to be in his ancestral land. Unfortunately, he only made it as far as Cleveland, where he had some friends. One of those friends paid for his burial at the Erie Street Cemetery. Soon thereafter, a crack developed across his tombstone, and people claimed that Jocosat's spirit cracked it because he was saddened that he had not been buried at home. Some claim that this spirit has even traveled over to Progressive Field and haunts that location, too. And it is very unusual because it's one of those really long stones that you put on top of somebody's grave. And it's cracked in several places, like right oh, down wow. the middle and then across it in several places. So it's, it's hmm. really damaged. 
That's not the only legend connected to the crack, though. Another story claims that people were hexed by Chief Thunderwater, and these hexed souls cracked Jokasat's headstone. And Chief Thunderwater, I guess, was one of the people who joined that pioneer group to try to save the cemetery. Not sure why they would lash out at that stone. There are several other ghost stories connected to the graveyard. Some think it is because so many bodies were disturbed when they were moved to other cemeteries. There are many unmarked graves, too, and that may have left some souls disturbed. There's the spirit of a woman in white here. She wears a long white dress and is usually seen standing near the gothic gates of the cemetery and beckoning to cars and people passing by. Kelly, as I was looking around for haunted cemeteries, I came across a story about a haunted crematory. And that got me to thinking, you know, we've never really discussed cremation on any of our haunted cemetery episodes. So what a perfect time to go ahead and get into it. I'm fired up about it. Ha ha. Ha ha. <laughs> I just burn for this topic. But um, Some cemeteries have their own crematorium on the premises. One of my favorite cemeteries in Colorado is Fairmont Cemetery, and it has its own crematorium. I remember hearing a story on a tour there that several decades ago, the screening apparatus malfunctioned and the smoke got out into the air. They had no idea it was broken until a woman called them to tell them that it was broken. And the reason why she knew was because she had survived Auschwitz and she would never forget that smell. How horrible. Yeah, it was a very sobering story, obviously. The history of cremation is a long one. The practice of burning bodies goes back to ancient times, with the first evidence of this dating to 17,000 years ago with the Mungo Lady, whose partially cremated remains were found at Lake Mungo in Australia. There were signs that it was a practice in the early Stone Age around 3000 BC. Archaeologists have also found indications of cremation in western Russia among the Slavic people through various decorative pottery urns that have been unearthed. The Bronze Age, 2500 to 1000 BC, saw cremation moving into the British Isles and into what is now Spain and Portugal. Specialized cemeteries for cremains were developed in Italy, Northern Europe, and Hungary at that time. Not every civilization during those early times were okay with cremation. Egyptians banned it as they thought it was impossible for the soul to transmigrate if cremated. Throughout history, it has been banned due to cultural prohibitions or religious ones. The Jewish religion and Christianity forbade cremation, particularly because they believed in a bodily resurrection for everyone. And Muslims as well forbid the practice. Other religious beliefs readily accept cremation. These included Hinduism, Sikhism, Buddhism, and Jainism. Other cultures embraced it with flair. Take the Vikings, for example. And we've discussed this in our spectacular crew, too. I know people have said, I want to be buried this way. Valhalla! <laughs> the Vikings had some of the coolest burial rites. These rites were fashioned around their pagan beliefs. After a Viking died, they would enter an afterlife with multiple realms, so it was very important that the funeral send-off was done right. In Norse mythology, two of these realms were known as Valhalla and Helheim. Valhalla was a place for fallen warriors, and Helheim was for Viking people who had died due to a dishonorable death. So it kind of looks to me like the difference between heaven and hell. To die in bed because of laziness or old age was not considered brave. The most common send-off was via cremation. Christianity later made inhumation the course of burial, and that just basically means burying your body in the ground. But for a long time, cremation was the way to go for a Viking. With cremation, the body was burned at temperatures so hot that flesh and bone would turn to ash. This ash could then be scattered, buried, or sailed out to sea. Generally, a funeral pyre would be built because that was the only way to get temperatures high enough for complete cremation. 
In some cases, and this is the one everybody loves, the pyre was built on a boat and sent out to sea, burning with the Vikings' belongings on board. This was reserved for wealthy or great Viking warriors. Cremation became a very popular Grecian burial custom during the Mycenaean Age. The reason for this is that the Greeks wanted a quick way to dispose of people killed during battles, and they believed it was healthier. By Homer's time in 800 BC, it was nearly the only form of burial practiced. The Romans followed the Greeks, but eventually an official decree had to be issued in the mid-5th century stating that bodies could not be cremated within the city of Rome. Cremated remains were put inside elaborate urns and stored in columbarium-like buildings. Since this had been so popular with the Romans, early Christians considered cremation a pagan ritual and forbade it. This resulted in earth burial becoming more prominent during Constantine's rule in 400 AD. This would remain for 1,500 years. During the Victorian era, cremation would undergo a change as people sought better methods for cremating the body. Funeral pyres just weren't a convenient method. I mean, you can't set one of those up in the middle of the town. I just want to be sent out on a boat. (laughs) (laughs) You don't even have to be on fire, right? No, you can light me on fire. (laughs) Fire, fire. (laughs) It would be at a world exposition of all places that modern cremation would be birthed. This would be the 1873 Vienna Exposition. The motto for this event was culture and education and was the first expo to offer an international forum for scientists. Over 7 million people visited the expo, and that's in 1873. That's amazing. One of the displays at the expo was a cremation chamber developed by Professor Brunetti of Italy. Yep, it would be the Italians, and this really is no surprise, Kelly, because, I mean, they do make the best stone oven pizza around. (laughs) This is true. They know how to fire stuff up, you know. Maybe that's the way I want to go in a stone oven where they make pizzas. Ew. Nobody's ever going to want pizza out of that oven again. The idea of making a crematory was introduced in 1869 to the Medical International Congress of Florence by Professors Coletti and Castiglione. Professor Paolo Guarini of Lodi and Professor Lodovico Brunetti of Padua published reports in 1873, and then a model of Brunetti's cremating apparatus was made and displayed with the ashes it made at the Vienna Expo. This would start modern cremation practices, particularly because Sir Henry Thompson, first baronet, a surgeon and physician to Queen Victoria, saw the crematory and became its biggest proponent in England. He and some colleagues founded the Cremation Society of England in 1874. The first crematories in Europe were built in 1878 in Woking, England and Gotha, Germany. But America had already beat them. Dr. Julius Le Meunier had built the first North American crematory in 1876 in Washington, Pennsylvania. You know what I love about this, Kelly, is this is like the Vienna Expo. We hear stories of this is when all the great inventions like the telephone and the elevator were displayed for everybody. And even looking at Disney, which we love. Walt Disney would take some of his stuff to these kinds of expos to show it. And this was one of the things they had there. Look at our greatest invention. It's a crematory. And we even have ashes in the oven to show you how it works. It's like, (laughs) what in the world? Who wants to take a spin? (laughs) All aboard. It really works. (laughs) That's terrible. Pennsylvania could change its state motto to home of cremation because the second crematory in America would also be built in the state in Lancaster in 1884. Many members of clergy and medical professionals would start forming cremation societies to promote the health benefits of cremation. Crematories started to be built across America, and by 1900, there were 20 crematories in place, like Buffalo, New York, Pittsburgh, Cincinnati, Detroit, and Los Angeles. Dr. Hugo Erickson would found the Cremation Association of America in 1913, and there would be a recorded 10,000 cremations that year. 
The number of crematories has continued to increase, and cremation is more popular than ever. It is believed that over half of the deaths in North America are handled with cremation today. There are over 2,000 crematories in the United States. Australia got into the cremation game in 1901. In our modern era, a cremator is used to cremate bodies. A cremator houses furnaces that can heat up to temperatures between 1600 and 1800 degrees. This high temperature is needed to ensure disintegration of the corpse. A cremator uses oil, natural gas, and propane as fuel. Coal and coke were used until the early 1960s. The chamber where the coffin is placed is called a retort and is lined with heat-resistant refractory bricks that have a special design. The outer layer is usually something like mineral wool, then a layer of calcium silicate, and two layers of fire bricks. These bricks are regularly replaced. The coffin enters the retort via a charger, which is a motorized trolley. This needs to happen quickly to retain heat. Full cremation is usually completed in three hours, depending on weight. Coffins that are used for cremations include wooden or cardboard boxes, and in places like Britain, a regular coffin is used, but it must be combustible. Rental caskets are used quite often during a service, and then the body is removed for cremation. A cremulator is used to further grind the remains down into a finer texture before they're given to relatives or loved ones or placed in a columbarium. Grind me up and feed the flowers. They'd probably make the flowers grow really nicely. I'm sure. I, I had no idea that grinders were involved. <laughs> Fun fact, did you know that you can cremate a body without fire? This is done via alkaline hydrolysis, which is technically known as resumation. The body is placed in a steel chamber and then potassium hydroxide and water are added. The temperature in the chamber reaches around 350 degrees and 145 pounds of pressure are added. The body is reduced to bones in about three hours and the bones are crushed into a white powder. This was developed in Europe in the 1990s to get rid of the bodies of cows infected with mad cow disease. Florida was one of the first states to legalize resumation. Of course. <laughs> this all sounds great when it comes to the environment, but I have one question. What happens to the liquid from this process? You know... The coffin juice? <laughs> this coffin cocktail would be water, chemicals, acids, and soaps from body fat. It's actually just dumped down the drain and disposed of through a wastewater treatment process. Ew. Not so fun, fun fact. <laughs> <laughs> Ashes weigh anywhere between one pound to eight pounds. There are no laws about keeping cremains, but there are some in regards to spreading of remains. For example... California requires cremains spread at sea to be quite a distance from shore, and the Golden Gate Bridge doesn't allow dumping of remains from it, although I'm sure there are many people who attempt to do so. Cremains can be kept at home in urns or mixed into paint to make paintings. There are places that will turn ashes into reefs or diamonds. A variety of jewelry can hold cremains. And there's even a company that will shoot you into orbit inside a lipstick case-sized holder. The possibilities are endless. We but wait! There's more. <laughs> Good grief. We couldn't share all that about cremation and not share a story about a haunted crematory. I found this in the Daily Commercial Herald from September 20th, 1888. The headline is, A Ghost Keeps Its Word. How Mr. Kilgore's Spirit Haunts the Philadelphia Crematory. The departed spirit of the late Damon Y. Kilgore, the well-known lawyer who fought for so many years to have his wife admitted to legal practice, is said to be ill at ease in its new abode. Mr. Kilgore was cremated as per his last wish, the crematory in Germantown near Washington Lane being the place of his incineration. <laughs> I love how they wrote things back then. <laughs> yes. 
Ever since the date of this occurrence, the place has been gaining the reputation of being haunted. Strange and ghostly sounds have been heard from twilight until dawn, and a number of the employees about the place have resigned positions on account of the omens. Groans are heard, they say, in the dimly lighted corridors. Shadows have flitted about the somber rotunda where the ashes of the dead repose, and one might imagine he could see hobgoblins going through some wild and fearful dance if he sat in the gloom of the basement and gazed at the weird band of light thrown on the cemented floor by the crackling furnace fire. But it was not until recently that these manifestations were traced to the spirit of Mr. Kilgore. On Wednesday night, Superintendent Beamsdurfer, one <laughs> of that name, <laughs> he was sitting before the furnace, calmly smoking his pipe, when there came a sharp resounding knock from the vicinity of the burial vault. It broke the intense melancholy of the place with startling force. The superintendent, a man who never feared the dead, looked about him with frightened eyes. His pipe fell from his lips, and as he himself now says, he realized by instinct that his visitor was no human being. The rap seemed to come from the aperture in the floor where the catafalque slides downward. I'm not sure what that word is. Gradually, they increased in volume until Mr. Beamsterfer, unable no longer to bear the suspense, grabbed his lantern with a trembling hand and started in that direction. Then he seemed to hear the sounds on every hand growing louder every minute. As he neared the spot, he saw in the mingled dimness of the gloom and the rays of his lantern what seemed to be a prostate form, which slowly assumed material shape until he recognized the features of the departed lawyer. While he looked at it, the form assumed an upright position, then struck several times upon the resounding walls and glided noiselessly away. Beamsterfer darted after it with his lantern held above his head, but the specter vanished in the darkness. The next night, the wrappings were repeated for several hours, but no phantom appeared. Mr. Kilgore was a confirmed spiritualist in faith and believed in the communion with the dead. Before his death, he is reported to have said that he would return to the scenes of his life, a fact which added to the terror of the superintendent. Although not a spiritualist himself, Mr. Beamsterfer is convinced that Mr. Kilgore's ghost is keeping the pledge made in life, and he does not care to keep a solitary watch in the dimly lighted crematory. We love our cemeteries, especially if they have ghost stories connected to them. Are any of these cemeteries really haunted? How about that crematory? That is for you to decide. That was so much fun. I love doing that stuff, Kelly. Absolutely. We want to invite you guys to check out our website at historyghostbump.com. If you want to send us some feedback, you can do that at historyghostbump at gmail.com or any of the various places where you can find us on social media. We also had a few messages over on our YouTube channel. If you've not subscribed to that, we encourage you to do so. We have a lot of great videos up there. On the St. Germain episode, Kelly, we had talked about the website Finding Count St. Germain, that website that was run by Jesse. Right. And I wrongly assumed that Jesse was a he. Uh-oh. It's actually a she. You know what they say when you assume. I know. So thank you for the listener letting us know that there. Episode 21 featured Haunted Chico Hot Springs Lodge and DJ Hoover commented on there, My wife freaked out in room 105, swore she heard doors slamming and felt a presence. But she did go back to sleep, so maybe it wasn't quite that scary. Well, that's good. And then, Kelly, we have our old Hamilton County Jail. We have not only the episode that we did on it, but we also have the live that we did there where people can see you hanging out with the spirits in the shower. <laughs> and Kimberly said to you, poor Kelly, why does she always get volunteered? Cracks me up. Sounds like me and my husband. Voluntold. <laughs> <laughs> Although you happily usually jump right in and do, I do. whatever. I do. I think it's because you have a special connection to spirits. Possibly. We want to thank you guys for tuning in to this episode. I've been your host, Diane. And this has been Kelly. You take care now. 
Bye bye. This episode isn't brought to you by our executive producers. Dispatches from the Grave Digger. First, we want to thank the Vander Yachts, who have once again been so generous to us. Thank you for your one-time donation. And you both regularly, monthly support the show. So you're just amazing human beings. We definitely could not do this podcast without you guys. Extremely generous. Thank you. And we want to welcome into the cemetery, Ty Nunjester. I hope I said your last name right. We're going to be putting you in the niche wall. And Denise Bray, you're going to be buried under an obelisk headstone. Thank you so much for supporting History Goes Bump. We really appreciate it. This episode was also brought to you by Bizarre Times Podcast, Smile Brilliant, and Hello Fresh. Join me in the cemetery by becoming an executive producer. You can join on Patreon or PayPal. Check out the Support the Show tab on the website for more information. weird phenomenon. We recall that we had a listener named Maya write us a few months back and she had wondered if cemeteries were haunted because spirits were were gar 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 gar. I'm gonna gargle. (laughs) (laughs) Because spirits were Popeye? (laughs) All of them? Oh my god. Olive. (laughs) (laughs) I didn't even try to make a joke with that. Oh my god. Look at that. You're so punny. (laughs) Of course, the boys didn't have anything to do with them getting knocked up. The Reverend... (laughs) I'm sorry. (laughs) That just threw me from my This was suggested by Susan Johnson of Freaky Flag... Freaky? Freaky? Is that like Freaky Pudding? Get get your Freaky on it. Or get get Freaky with it? I don't know. (laughs) This was suggested and researched by Susan Johnson of Freaky Flagstone foot torch. Flagstone. You know why? Because this is all alliteration. <laughs> Freaky flagstaff foot tours. I can say it. I know I can. Green, green ones. <laughs> Giving it a beautiful and peaceful feel. Feel. Feel? You give them a good feel. Hockdurfers? <laughs> I'm not sure I if that's how you say it. But <laughs> love would say. I don't know. Gotta love the durfer at the end there. And when that ended, he went east to hunt and met a na- and met a na- nam <laughs> met a nam <sighs> words. <laughs> this is done via alkaline. Ho- this is done. This is done via alkaline. Ho- ha- 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 hydros- hydrolysis. 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 Jesus. <laughs> no, it's hydrolysis. <laughs> Sorry, <not> Lord. Jesus. <laughs> Although I bet he could burn you up in two seconds. <laughs> yeah. Sometimes I deserve it. <laughs> Ha <laughs> ha!